Oh, good evening to you all. It was really beautiful just now seeing not only the extraordinary red sunset, but also walking up here and seeing so many of you standing outside and walking outside or just a lot of people standing completely still watching the the beauty of the evening sky. And to me, there's something so uh, and beautiful in just that in seeing seeing the seeing you all standing there it's kind of more beautiful than the sunset actually this field of of stillness and attentiveness that we're creating together it's really special i think you probably don't realize how special it is so i hope that you've had many moments maybe that one was one of them of uh, ease and peace in your day. But I suspect that the day's been a, a mixture of the comings and goings of dukkha, of suffering. Um, and that's really what I want to talk about tonight, the comings and goings of dukkha. So Greg the other evening spoke about uh, the dukkha and the first noble truth and also mentioned this famous statement of the Buddha that I teach only two things, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. So what I want to do tonight is to continue to look at this business of the constellation and deconstellation of dukkha, this unsatisfactoriness or not quite rightness of life, and this spectrum word that uh, covers everything from that mild sense of not quite rightness to uh, the most agonizing moments and experiences of our life. And if you've been swimming in some of those, at whichever part of the spectrum today, then you can know that you've been practicing the first noble truth. And and I, I've been thinking about this term noble truth and I've reframed it to myself as the true understanding of the noble ones. And tonight I want to talk more about the second uh, true understanding of the noble ones, about the origin of dukkha. And a little bit about the third because it's difficult to talk about the arising of dukkha without talking about its disappearance as well. So this is what the Buddha had to say about the origin of dukkha. And what is the origin of suffering? It is craving. And the word for craving is tanha, which is uh, strictly speaking, means thirst. I've also seen some teachers uh, refer to it as hunger. It is tanha, which brings renewal of being, is accompanied by delight and lust, and delights in this and that. That is tanha, craving for sensual pleasures, craving for being, and craving for non-being. This is called the origin of suffering. So this this aspect of tanha that says brings renewal of being is worth pausing over. This, the Pali word is ponabhavika, which means something like um, again becoming. So it's this, this way in which craving um, induces us to take birth 
uh, to take one birth or one position after another so that we're um, constantly renewing our vulnerability in this new position to the dukkha of experiencing what we don't want or to losing what we want or simply not getting what we want. So let's take a look together at tanha. And the first thing I want to say is that tanha is, in a way, it's our natural response to pleasant and unpleasant stimuli. For survival as an organism, in a sense, we need to have this uh, responsiveness to what's pleasant and what's unpleasant. We need to to respond to that, in in a sense, we need to, to grasp to a degree in order to survive. So I think the first thing to do with tanha is not to go about trying to annihilate it, but just as we do with dukkha, to actually um, try to understand it. So there's this natural survival mechanism that we have, which, when we live it without wisdom, just traps us in an endless cycle of craving. But it's also, I think, important to acknowledge that there are some basic needs for life and that there are many people even here now on this planet who are in situations where the basic needs of life aren't being met. And I'm not talking about um, the kind of wanting um, that might be experienced in those circumstances so much as the, the neurotic wanting that persists even when our basic needs are already taken care of. And yet we can reflect that there, there will come a time for all of us in the natural process of aging and dying when our survival needs can no longer be met. And then what are we going to do then? Yeah. So the Buddha said that life in any world is incomplete, insatiate, the slave of craving. Pointing to this fact that however much we have, it's not enough, it's never quite right. So I don't know if any of you know of or know any uh, very wealthy people who are completely contented. I've never met one or heard of one. There's a story that Rockefeller was asked, you know, um, how much money was going to be enough for him, and he would say, just a little bit more. (laughs) (laughs) There's always something else to want, you know. So first of all, you know, this kind of craving can never be satisfied. And secondly, also, we're not, we're not an isolated bubble. So our cravings impinge on others. And this is part of what conditions suffering in other beings as well. Craving is what causes people to take from one another what's not freely offered or to, to cause harm in various ways. So Greg kind of made the joke yesterday morning that... Uh, even probably wars have started because of people's inability to tolerate unpleasant feeling. Certainly, I think wars have started because of, um, because of craving. And also craving, not aside from harming others, can also trap us in uh, behaviours that we know are harmful to us. And this is why both these facts are why the precepts are such an important and necessary protection in our practice. So when we want to understand the relationship of of craving, of tanha and dukkha, uh, 
in the teachings there, it's expressed in terms of this, that conditionality. When one thing is present, the other thing is also present. When one thing arises, the other thing arises. And when one thing isn't there, the other thing isn't there. When one thing stops, the other thing stops. So this is a kind of pattern of causation that is both causal, but it's also synchronic. The two things are happening at the same time. And people get into these arguments over, is craving the cause of dukkha or is um, craving the mind's response to dukkha? And if we look at just those English words, unsatisfactoriness and dissatisfaction, it's like you don't get one without the other. So it's a bit like you know arguing about the chicken and the egg. But one way of looking at it maybe, I, I think, is that uh, dukkha isn't something that we do. Nobody does dukkha. Dukkha is something we experience. But tanha, or craving, is something that we experience, but it's also something we get involved in doing. And so that's why the Buddha made tanha the thing that we really need to investigate. So we've been noticing the last couple of days uh, vedana, or feeling tones, and our responses to them. And the Buddha made this observation that Uh, feeling tones condition craving, they condition tanha, and tanha in turn conditions clinging and grasping, and it's this um, pattern of conditioning that keeps us trapped in the cycle of dukkha. So this is one way he described it. He said, where does this craving when arising arise? Where when dwelling does it dwell? Whatever is endearing and alluring in terms of the world, that is where this craving, when arising, arises. And that is where, when dwelling, it dwells. And notice that craving doesn't just arise, it dwells, kind of lodges in. I don't know if you've noticed that. Certainly my experience. And he says, And what is endearing and alluring in terms of the world? The I, that is where this craving, when arising, arises. That is where, when dwelling, it dwells. Forms or objects visible by the I, and he covers all the different sense bases. So all the sense bases, all the objects that the sense bases perceive. Sense contact, the feelings, the Vedana born of sense contact. The perceptions of sense objects the intention for and the craving for, thought directed at, an evaluation of sense objects. In all these, all these, there's the, um, there's the possibility of uh, in, things being endearing and alluring and craving taking root. So put another way that there are six classes of craving that arise in response to each of these sense doors. So in the mind, that would include things like fantasies and mental imagery or um, craving for abstract ideas or intellectual systems or feelings or emotions. And then he goes on, and where being abandoned is this craving abandoned? And where, when ceasing, does it cease? Whatever is endearing and alluring in terms of the world, 
That is where, when being abandoned, this craving is abandoned. That is where, when ceasing, it ceases. So actually, what, turns, what sounds like bad news in the beginning, it turns out to be really good news, because our experience is presenting us with an infinite number of places where craving can be abandoned, an infinite number of places that are doorways into, into freedom. So just like dukkha, uh, with dukkha, the arising, uh, arising and di- disappearance of craving depends on conditions. When there's feeling tone, vedana and ignorance, then craving and dukkha arise. When there is vedana and wisdom, then no craving arises or there's a possibility of freedom. So I'm not going to talk more about Vedana tonight, but I want to just talk about tanha or craving. So as a, in the quote at the beginning, there are three types of tanha. The desire for sense pleasures, the desire for becoming, bhava tanha, and the desire for non-becoming, vibhava tanha. So just say a little bit about each of these. So the desire for sense pleasures, karma tanha. And this is something that on retreat, you can really, we can really watch this process unfolding in a lot of detail. And I'm sure you'll all have your own examples. But, uh, I had an experience on a retreat that I sat um, with a chocolate brownie. <laughs> that occupied a lot of my attention for two or three days. And this was at Spirit Rock. I'm not sure about IMS brownies yet. We maybe haven't had them yet on this retreat. But at Spirit Rock, they, they make these extraordinarily delicious brownies. And I was being very mindful and careful with my eating and you know not wanting to overeat and ruin my meditation for the day but so the day that the brownies were there at lunch I actually wasn't terribly hungry but I thought I don't want to miss these brownies so I'll save one in the yogi fridge with my name on it so I carefully uh, practiced moderation didn't eat the brownie saved it and put it in the yogi fridge and then you can imagine what happens is that Every time my mind is feeling slightly restless for the next day or two, it starts conjuring up this image of this brownie in the yogi fridge with my name on it. And then there's a lot of planning that starts to happen and strategizing about what would be the perfect time to eat this brownie that would really kind of optimize the enjoyment. And eventually I got a bit tired of this. I just thought, okay, I'm going to eat the brownie at some, you know, suitably uh, well-chosen time. But of course, when you actually sit down and eat it, it was actually a bit of a disappointment and a bit of a chore, even though it was very well-preserved and it had all its yummy features still present. But nothing quite lived up to that first anticipation of thinking, oh, there's this brownie that I'm going to eat. Or there can be, you know, um, sense pleasures with regard to to mind objects, to mental things. So, you know, wanting, for example, just now, there's just as I left home, there's a there's a, a highly successful, very riveting 
TV drama that had runs three episodes and there are three left to run that I'm missing while I'm while I'm here, and <laughs> I can fi- I can notice those moments where my mind starts thinking I really want to know what's happening in this in this thing and I can start doing action replays of the ones I've already watched and I notice that when I'm dwelling in that I'm not really here. I can't really reconnect. The mind is craving the kind of emotional and the intellectual stimulation and the excitement of what's going on in this drama. And actually, the sense of discontentment and restlessness here just increases and it saps my energy out of the present moment. So again, we all have our versions of these and we want to engage in fantasy or planning or you might even find yourself wanting to work out the perfect formula for expressing some dharma insight or explaining some aspect of dharma. I wonder how many dharma talks you're composing in your mind. <laughs> and I just you know, want to say that's, that's, that's something, the hours that I spent writing dharma talks in my mind, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And of course, when you actually need them, they've all disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> So this desire for different sense objects, it also overlaps with the, the desire for becoming bhava-tanha. So these might be things like fantasies about being a good meditator. You know, if only I were, when I become a good meditator or even even better meditator, when I can get this and that in my practice or be more like so-and-so, then I won't suffer I could be more like the people sitting up on the stage, I'd suffer less. You can park that one straight away. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, the, in fact, the only, the only people who, who don't suffer are the ones who are completely happy being themselves. So I would really continue being yourself. Yeah. And often these, these three forms of craving, they go around together so that might also come with a wish to you know, get rid of the me that is, or get rid of an un- the unpleasant feeling of not being quite right or good enough as we are. Or we might imagine ourselves doing all the things in the future that we want to do. Or perhaps looking backwards, you know, I notice myself as I get to the stage in my life where probably more of my life is behind me than in front of me. The, the way that we can spend time wanting the past that we haven't had or craving conditions of youth or health that we haven't had, don't have anymore. And some of these are more obvious sources of suffering than others. So craving what we can't have, or, you know, we might just simply be missing out on the present moment whilst craving things that when we get them aren't going to be as we imagine anyway, because the goalposts are always moving, aren't they? So those, I can't remember which wit it was who said that the only thing that's worse than not, what, not getting what you want is getting what you want. Mm-hmm. So this is the, the desire for becoming bhava-tanha, or for getting, getting and becoming. And then there's the desire for non-becoming, or getting rid of things, annihilation, vibhava-tanha. So this is the way that we want to annihilate what we don't like. So maybe to get somebody to stop doing something that's annoying us. If only we could get that watch off somebody that continually beeps or ticks and annoys us. 
or we want to get rid of the bits of our experience that we don't like or a situation that we don't like. So remember some time ago doing a course where I had to to write assignments and I've never liked writing assignments and things and having this deadline coming up for this piece of work I was supposed to produce and I spent about a day with a really powerful temptation. I lived at that point near the right next door to the River Thames and I had this huge temptation to walk down to the river and throw my laptop into the river. This kind of way, we just think that will kind of fix everything. We can annihilate our problems by just getting rid of something like that. Or it can work the other way where we want to run away from a situation that makes us feel uncomfortable. So, you know, people, sometimes we experience that on retreat as just kind of wanting to run away, either run away from the retreat or run away and hide in our room under the bedclothes and so on. And sometimes this kind of withdrawing from what's difficult is is actually um, wisdom operating, you know, so to actually know when we something is too much of us, but a lot of the time it's just a very self limiting inability or habit of not staying present, not being able to stay present with uncomfortable feeling so this this way either of trying to get rid of something or to um, withdraw from it. And I think for practitioners, meditators, often there can be a lot of vibhava tanha. You know, we would, that maybe like the sense of wanting to realize not self in order to to get away from the discomfort of the self that I I don't like or that um, I I'm dissatisfied with. It's like we we want to get rid of that rather than to actually do the patient and and. Uh, time-consuming work that will eventually lead us to realize that actually that self that we don't like is a figment of our imagination anyway. So there are these three types of of tanha that we can experience both in relationship to, to things and to ourselves and also in relationship to other people. So a lot of tanha can land on other people wanting another person's company or their interest or their intimacy, um, not wanting to be alone by ourselves. So I I lived uh, as a celibate nun in a monastery from the age of 29 to 38, and I had lots of opportunities to observe different infatuations with other people coming and going in my mind. And you know, sometimes this arises on retreats as well in terms of um, what we call Vipassana romances, the infatuations that we can uh, develop with one another. And just, you know, remembering things like just kind of longing for somebody to just cross my path and uh, being walk- walking around a field and just kind of, you know, just being kind of obsessed with, well, maybe, I, maybe I'll catch a glimpse of this person or, you know, the feeling when you see their shoes or something mm-hmm. <laughs> waiting in the, in the hall out there. You know. And it just keeps you in a constant and exhausting kind of anticipation of the future. And it's not meta, it's, it's an attachment. It's the kind of liking that wants something from somebody else and usually wants them to be 
the way we want them to be for us, which is usually a complete fantasy and impossible. And even if it does happen for a while, it's never going to be sustainable. So just, you know, noticing if a lot of energy gets absorbed into, into these kind of worlds when we're on retreat and just noticing the discomfort of it. Or the, uh, the other side, I think Annie spoke about the, both of these uh, the other day, but the, the, the Vipassana Vendetta where we just got, want to get rid of the person who's doing all these things that annoy us. So life is an experience of being beset on all sides by tanha, just as the way that we're beset by dukkha. But you can also notice the times in your day when there's wanting and the times when there isn't. And the mind can still be really perverse about this. So I had an experience very recently of um, being at one of my favorite um, bakeries really lovely day with with friends and this extraordinary array of delicious looking cakes and sandwiches and things spread out and noticing that I actually didn't particularly want anything I wasn't wasn't hungry particularly and there were all these things that I just wanted to want noticing this strange experience of wanting to want things that I didn't want So rather than just appreciating, wow, there's a sense of contentment, there's no desire present in the mind. Or somebody else was speaking recently about that that kind of really difficult moment when you've run out of things to shop for online. Somebody who gets a lot of pleasure from eBay. So so our restlessness is it goes around perversely looking for things to want. And in our practice, you know, it's really difficult to practice not having a goal or an expectation because the mind wants to have an objective. It wants to have something to do, to get, rather than just noticing the presence of peace or contentment. And I've even noticed that when, even when wanting is of a really painful variety, sometimes the mind still just goes, goes there. Because although it's t- tasting some respite from the wanting, there's still this kind of thing that if I, if I just wanted it more, maybe I'd get it. And that would be more satisfying than the peace that's available now. So we really need to be on our, on our toes about this, to be mindful. And to, as Bhante said, to practice being expectation-free. You know, do we want to be practicing mindfulness or do we want to be practicing tanha? So there's a task that uh, uh, is put forth with this second noble truth, that this tanha is to be abandoned. If we want our suffering to diminish, we have to learn to let go of tanha. And this is a very um, countercultural approach to our human predicament because we're swimming in a culture that wants us to keep on wanting things. The whole economy depends on us wanting things. So how do we, how do we respond to tanha in a way that it diminishes? We need to respond to it without greed, hatred, and delusion. 
So Bante had this beautiful um, way of putting it in relation to physical and emotional pain, that we don't push them away, we don't suppress them, we don't ignore them, but we let them dissolve by meeting them with wisdom. And this is uh, how we need to approach tanha. So just studying in ourselves how does, how does tanha escalate and how does it de-escalate and how is it abandoned and kept at bay. So one of the, the first skillful means is to develop this, uh, this parami, this, um, this wholesome quality or spiritual quality of renunciation, which is the ability or the habit of not acting on all our urges of craving. So I've been just recently reading a book that some of you might have come across um, called The Marshmallow Test uh, by a, um, a psychologist called Walter Mischel, which talks about the, these experiments that began in the 1960s with preschoolers to study the mechanisms for delaying gratification or understanding how to delay gratification. So they had all these these preschoolers in the first experiment who were offered uh, one treat now or two treats uh, in about 15 minutes if they could wait and the things were spread out in front of them. And they, they looked at the conditions in which uh, children would be able to, were able to wait or not to wait. And it sounds, it sounds a little bit cruel, but the way they did it was very careful and actually was the children of the experimenters were part of the experiment. So they were, they were, they were very, um, very meticulous in how they conducted this experiment. But it was so interesting that they've repeated this in different ways uh, with different groups um, since then. And also in some of the later ones, those ones weren't filmed, but they've also filmed um, the participants to see what they get up to to try to uh, ward off this impulse to eat all the eat all their marshmallows or their treats right now. So there's some findings from that as to what enables people to to be with tanha without acting on it or to delay gratification. And uh, the understanding now is that the the mind has. Uh, what are thought of as a hot system and a cool system. So the hot system is the, the limbic system or the primitive part of the brain, which when it's activated, it triggers an instantaneous response. So that, you know, the bit of us that would reach out and grab the cookie or grab the marshmallow. And this is like a kind of accelerator towards getting what we want. And then there's a, a cool system that enables us to step back from our feelings as if to observe them at a distance and to reframe our perspectives. And this uses the more um, recently developed uh, parts of the brain. And this is like the, the system that puts the brakes on it. And so to, to um, resist the temptation to act on tanha, requires this ability to activate the cool system. And incidentally, so does the, um, 
so does the ability to to let go of or to uh, respond to painful emotion also requires this um, stepping back and perspective taking which is what we've we've been exploring and encouraging in our own practice so these observations they they have been kind of looked at in the in these experiments but actually they're not new at all they're things that were recognized by the buddha so this is the buddha's version of what happens he says when one doesn't see as they actually are forms i i consciousness eye contact, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling based on eye contact and the other senses. One is inflamed by lust for these. When, in, when one abides inflamed by lust, fettered, infatuated, contemplating gratification, then one's craving increases. One's bodily and mental torments increase. One's bodily and mental fevers increase and one experiences bodily and mental suffering. When one abides uninflamed by lust, unfettered, uninfatuated, contemplating danger, then craving is abandoned. One's bodily and mental torments and fevers are abandoned, and one experiences bodily and mental pleasure. And then he goes on to say one then applies oneself in practice, to practice in such a way as to arrive at understanding and liberation. So what he's saying is when we abide contemplating gratification, when we dwell on the endearing and alluring features of something, then craving escalates. But when we dwell on the bigger picture or the drawbacks or the dangers of craving, or when we dwell on the unappealing or the neutral features of something, then craving diminishes. So one of the things they did with the children in, in these experiments is for, uh, they would ask some of them while they're waiting to think about the lovely, soft yumminess and the sweet, gooey flavor of the marshmallows or the cookies. And then with some other others, they would they would ask them to see the marshmallows as clouds or imagine them as pictures or see frames around them. And you can imagine what happened. You know, The kids who were asked to think about the appealing features of the, the marshmallows had a much harder time um, waiting to, to have them than the ones who just imagined them as something abstract, imagined them as clouds and so on. Yesterday I was in a in a debate with Greg over the nature of raisins in oatmeal with a couple of people, and uh, we had we definitely had two camps. We had the raisin the raisin lovers and the raisin the raisin uh, those who didn't appreciate raisins in their oatmeal. And it was really interesting to see how people just naturally talked about them. Like the, the people who were raisins in oatmeal people were talking about, and we were talking about that whether you put them in at the end or whether you put them at the be- in at the beginning and cook it so it all goes soft and people who liked them were saying oh they're, they're, you know you put them in and they're all soft and juicy and uh, people who didn't like them would say that oh they're all soggy and mushy you know <laughs> and just this way the way of perceiving really um, conditions whether something is desirable or non-desirable 
so we can also think about the consequences of going with a craving. So this is another strategy that some of these kids employed to to try to resist the the temptation, knowing that they really what they really wanted to do was to wait and you know get their extra treats and they would do things like making up stories or singing to themselves or moving and dancing around the room and and so so forth so you might recognize some of the strategies for working with unhelpful thoughts that i mentioned the other day there's there's many creative things that we can do actually to de-escalate our cravings and also in this marshmallow experiment, they, they also um, experimented with priming them with happy or sad thoughts or inviting them to think about something that made them happy or inviting them to think about something that made them sad. And guess what? You know, we're much more prone to um, be pushed around by our cravings when the mind is upset and when the mind is happy and relaxed we're much less likely to be overwhelmed by this hot system. And so we can, we're really cultivating that in, in our practice. We're cultivating this almost as a prophylactic against being swept away by tanha. So this way of attending to the different characteristics of experience is especially discussed in the traditional teachers in relation to lust or sexual craving. And, of course, you know, lust intensifies when we we dwell in our minds on the attractiveness of others. And we can also, if that's happening to us, you know, the traditional remedies are to Instead, turn the mind to what's unattractive about others' bodies and about bodies in general. It's also interesting to me that in the in the suttas, the Buddha points out, or he says that um, sexual craving increases when we attend to our own um, attractiveness or our own sexual identity. And that's maybe not what we not what we would necessarily think about as a as a causal mechanism. But I think it's in my in my experience, I've really contemplated this. And again, you know, having gone from being a twenty eight year old laywoman to being uh, a nun dressed like Bante, and then back to uh, back into. Uh, lay life afterwards it's really it's really interesting to see that the way that one conceives of oneself really affects one's experience in that regard and you know we have we do have some measure of choice here so i'm not saying you know go investigating this if this isn't arising for you but if this arises for you as something that's disturbing your practice on retreat it's really worth checking out so the good news is that because tanha is conditioned uh, it can also be deconditioned and this takes us to the third noble truth which I just want to spend a, a short amount of time on so this third true understanding or realization of the noble ones that 
dukkha is of the nature to dissolve. With the complete fading away, cessation, abandonment, and letting go of, letting go of, freedom and independence from tanha, dukkha also disappears. And this, of course, was in, in the teaching in the, in the first sermon of the Buddha, the, the setting in motion of the wheel of the Dhamma, where he expounded the Four Noble Truths according to tradition for the first time. And one of his listeners, Kondanya, had this insight that whatever is of the nature to arise is of the nature to dissolve again. And that being true, that dukkha itself, being a conditioned experience of the nature to arise, is of the nature to dissolve again. And this insight was so profound and important that at that moment it said that all throughout the devalokas, throughout all the heavenly realms, the devas jumped up and rejoiced that, this, that, the, the, that finally um, this teaching had been set rolling in the world and, and that it was transmittable from one person to another. So because all this um, is of the nature to come together, it's also of the nature to dissolve. With the complete fading away, cessation, abandonment, letting go of, freedom and independence from tanha, dukkha also disappears. And so you can notice that these words imply uh, are waiting out and are not acting on rather than are getting rid of something. And it talks about freedom and independence from tanha. And this, this would actually suggest that perhaps that you can be independent and free from entanglement in desire, even though desire is a natural part of being alive. So this is what Ajahn Sumedho, who was uh, my teacher in England, um, had to say on the third noble truth, the cessation of dukkha. He says, cessation is easy to understand on an intellectual level, but to realize it may be quite difficult because this entails abiding with what we think we cannot bear. It's very important to differentiate between cessation and annihilation, the desire that comes into the mind to get rid of something. Cessation is the natural ending of any condition that's arisen, so it's not desire. Cessation does not come about from a sense of, I have to get rid of things, but when we allow that which has arisen to cease. So this third noble truth comes with a task as well. And the task is to see for ourselves the disappearance of tanha and the peace that comes with it. And this is the motivator of our practice as well as the fruit. We wouldn't all be here if we hadn't seen that in moments for ourselves. This is really why the, the... the third noble truth of the end of suffering comes before the fourth, which is the practice of the path to the end of suffering. So we taste this in moments through, the, through our day. Uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa, who I think we've already mentioned, a uh, great Thai teacher, 
talked about uh, Nibbana also uh, in terms of mini-Nibbanas, the way the mind naturally releases or lets go many times during the day. And he said, if we didn't do this, we'd all go crazy. Letting go and release can happen in any moment. And we need to, to see this for ourselves. So just noticing the moments in your day, and many of you have mentioned these in practice meetings and so on, when you notice the subsiding of wanting, when the desire for the cup of coffee disappears, or the wanting of the chocolate for the chocolate brownie fades away. Or maybe our desire for our own fantasy life dissolves. And we experience this as a kind of quenching of thirst, as a tanha of thirst, or, and this thirst is, is for the time being quenched. It's also compared to the extinguishing of flames or the cooling of burning. And in many ways, I think our practice here is really about developing this acquired taste, the taste for peace over the taste of wanting. Recognizing that it's more satisfying to abandon wanting than to find yet another thing to want. Uh, The Buddha put it like this. Just as the ocean has a single taste, the the taste of salt, so too this teaching and path have a single taste, the taste of freedom. Can we develop the taste for this? And this is what Ajahn Chah had to say. If you clearly see the truth through meditation, then suffering will become unwound, just like a screw. When you unwind a screw, it withdraws. It's not tightly fixed as when you screw it clockwise. The mind withdraws like this. It lets go. It relinquishes. It's not tightly bound with good and evil, within possessions, praise and blame, happiness or suffering. If we don't know the truth, it's like tightening the screw all the time. You screw it down until it crushes you and you suffer over everything. When you unwind out of all that, you become free and at peace. So just going to end with a few more words from Ajahn Chah, which will be very familiar to some of you, but I find them eternally encouraging. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful rare animals will come to drink at the pool and you will clearly see the nature of all things.
You'll see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but the mind will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.